Welcome to the Modes of Mouth podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. On this Gearing Up show, we're joined by David Dicker, the man behind Road and Cars, who are building some frankly insane road legal cars, as well as an F1 car that is faster than the current Grand Prix cars. He's built himself a multi-million dollar empire and he's here to chat all about it and his F1 aspirations. Thanks for listening. If you like it, please do leave us a review it really helps us to get bigger and enjoy welcome to the latest episode of our gearing up series where we focus on unsung heroes of motorsport or those within the industry that should have a spotlight shone on them for one reason or another however before i introduce today's guest i have to head over to essex to join my esteemed colleague who no longer has a nasty lockdown haircut but a perfectly cut barnet that any local 15 pound barber would be proud to call their own yes it's the man that has more motorsport knowledge in his little finger than a veritable paddock of motorsport officials it's the mighty ladies and gentlemen harry benjamin how are you oh thank you tim and i really don't pay you for these introductions but every <laughs> week they just they just get better and better i was actually saying today how i actually have to go back to the barber i think it's getting a bit big now so uh, yeah the, bu- the bouffon is growing now that i'm now that we're allowed to um yeah no i am all good i'm uh, i mean I, it's, it's difficult to really update things because you know it's uh, it's still a lockdown really and, and yeah it's just difficult. I did have my first trip on the tube and I went into London town, the big smoke. Was the tube completely deserted? It, it wasn't completely deserted. There was quite a few people on there, but I mean, I didn't go during rush hour, but also obviously I had to wear my mask, which was an intriguing. Yes. And it was, it was very hot as well. And that wasn't so pleasant, but um, uh, that was doable. But I, I had my first sort of meeting in town and I had to have my whole temperature taken. Yeah, yeah. Like a, whole, a whole new world, really. Uh, it's uh, that horrible phrase, the, the, the new normal, isn't it? But the it's, new uh, it, How it, has the new normal been for you? It's been fine. I mean, it, it, it's a bit weird, isn't it? It feels a bit like we're going backwards, which is slightly worrying. Um, yeah. So I'm hoping that everything straightens out. Um, I mean, it's good to have the racing back on TV, so that, that's a bonus. And we've obviously just had one of the, uh, the Silverstone races... Um, um, yeah, and was, what, um, 40 laps of boring and then and then three, three laps, laps of end. carnage yeah which was good to watch and obviously that was on channel four which is a bonus for me without sky sports so i managed to actually watch a race from start to finish on uh, on freeview but um listen shall i introduce today's guest yeah let's do it so our gearing up episodes are all about interesting folks in our beloved sport and today we have a cracker david dicker could well take the prize as our most interesting guest so far a man who admits he hated school didn't get a degree but found himself making a fortune through computers entirely self-taught. His company, Dicker Data, has turned over billions of dollars. But it's his latest venture that inspired us to reach out. One of his latest and greatest exploits is building a single-seater racing car that aims to be faster than an F1 car, and he's doing it through his own company, Rodin Cars. He's developing the cars on his own test track. Yes, he has a test track at his own office in New Zealand, and he's recently partnered with W Series champion Jamie Chadwick to cement his place in motorsport and increase brand awareness and utilize her skills as a development driver as he and his team create the ultimate track car but there are also plans afoot for a frankly insane road legal car it's a pleasure to have him here david dicker welcome to the motormouth podcast yeah thanks very much you're very welcome david you're uh, you're in new zealand at the moment are you so i mean we were just talking about it there and and we 
can't get away from it, really. What, what's the situation like out in New Zealand? Because actually, we spoke to Brendan Hartley not long ago, who was based in New Zealand, and, and lockdown happened pretty early on there. And it seems that New Zealand's probably one of the better places to be right now. Well, it's okay if you want to be stuck here. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I came back here from the first challenge round of this season mm. and they locked the joint down about three days later and I've been stuck here ever since. The problem I've got is that, well, I couldn't even get out for the first couple of months. I could fly out now, but the issue is that you've got to spend 14 days basically in prison on the way back. And that makes it exceptionally difficult to basically do any business outside of New Zealand. The country's completely isolated. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a difficult one. So, well, when, if, back, back when the world was normal, where, where do you tend to spend most of your time? Well, I actually live in Dubai, so I'd spend some time. Then I've got a house in Italy, and I do Ferrari Challenge, and I was going to do Europe and Asia Pacific this year. So it was going to be a pretty busy schedule. Where, whereabouts in Dubai have you got your place? It's on the palm. Very nice, very nice. I spent three years living in Dubai and uh, it's a lovely place to live. Bloody hot during the summer months, but if you can tolerate that, you're okay. Do you, do you tend to split your time between Dubai, New Zealand and Australia? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it, oh, I don't spend that much time in Australia. I don't really need to. Um, and obviously with the project we've got here in New Zealand, Having to spend, what have I been here for, what, five months? I mean, it helps the project, just doesn't help me. <laughs> yeah. And was there any sign in, back, in, uh, back in the day, that, any sign of what was to come? Did you always think, I'm going to be a businessman, I want to work for myself, uh, I'm into computers? What, what was happening in those early days? And were there any hints as to what you were going to do in the future? No, I wouldn't say there were any. I, I mean... <clears throat> You always read these stories about, you know, these 10-year-old entrepreneur-type kids. Well, that wasn't me. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't have... I remember I had a job once um, putting flyers in mailboxes after school. And, you know, like it paid about nothing. And after I'd been doing it for a while, I thought, you know, I think I'd rather have the time than the money. So, no, I, I didn't really... Um, I wasn't like that at all, and I wasn't a hustler or any of that kind of stuff. Um, when I was a young kid, you know, I played football and cricket. I was okay. I wasn't great. Um, but when I was 14, my parents pushed me into taking up sailing because um, I don't know why. Anyway, and that really captured my imagination, and it was the first thing in my life that had really captured it, even though I was quite good at sport and I was quite good at school and all the other kind of stuff, but really, um, yeah, and <clears throat> that sort of took over my life really for the next five or ten years, which wasn't quite the outcome they were hoping for. The sailing part took up your life. Yeah. Well, racing, obviously, small boats, you know, the sort of thing you guys have in the UK, yeah. that type of stuff. Is that where sort of the, the racing bug came and, and bit you, really? Is that when you sort of, you were doing... Yeah. Is that, and did that, when did that develop into, into cars and, and, your, and your fascination with, with motor racing and motorsport? Well, I never had much of an interest in cars when I was a kid. I remember, it's crazy how you remember some of the things. I was about 12 years old and I thought, well, I won't be able to get a car license for five years. And when you're 12, five years seems so far down the line that, so I just thought I'll forget about cars. Um, but once I got a license and I started to, you know, drive, obviously it was fun. But the big thing about it was, and this is, you're going to laugh. Um, 
when you race a boat, obviously the preparation work is basically the same as motor racing. You're always making stuff. Everything's built as light as possible. I used to say on these classes that didn't even have a minimum weight. So you're always working on the boat. You're always practicing, hours rigging up, blah, blah, blah. And you could just get in the car and just go for a spin, which obviously was um, hell of a lot easier. So that made it, made it quite attractive too because, you know, you queue forward to the racing and it's completely different. And Dicker Data, so tell us how this came about. Um, founded circa 1978, you've taken an unconventional route to be a businessman in the sense that you've said in other interviews you weren't a fan of school, you didn't go to uni, um, there were no particular aspirations to to start your own business and, and go down this road. So how did Digger Data come about? And, and, and when you started it and you started shipping out products and so on, did you ever imagine it would go on to the size that it became? Well, no. Our, <coughs> our original target was to sell 10 computers a month. You know, we do what we do... Um, our daily sales average in Australia now is about uh, between you know seven and uh, ten thousand a day. I mean that's just crazy difference. But <clears throat> I I done this refrigeration mechanics course after I left high school, sort of at the behest of my parents. It was boring. Um, I went overseas with a friend of mine for a while, and when I came back, my parents. Like most parents are always concerned and they're always pushing you to do things. So I took this job work. My father had this business making these metal plates that hold timber roof trusses together. And he had guys who used this system in, throughout Australia. So I took a job working in one of these plants in Adelaide and I moved down there. And it, it actually it was quite, it was fun, really, to be honest. I mean, it was just basically, you know, manual work. But it, and... I'd been there about six months and they wanted me to stay there and manage it, but I went back and basically took over all the sort of strategy and operations of my father's business. And that's how we got into the computers because you'd, in the old days, to make the, the trusses, you'd make a pattern and then you'd cut the pieces because all the bits of wood are different. And there's only about 20 or 30 trusses in the house and every house is different, so it's a bit of a pest. Mm. So... Our consulting engineers started to muck around with these programmable calculators to work it out. And we decided to buy one to keep an eye on them because obviously consultants like that are super expensive. Anyway, I was I, I pretty quickly made better headway on the calculator than they were, so I took that over. And then we realised that we needed more powerful machines and we tried to buy them in Australia and we sort of struggled because the guys that were selling them were a bit hopeless and we started buying these US magazines with these microcomputers in them and, you know, it looked like it could do the job. And I went to America and bought four machines in about uh, June or July of 78 and that's really how we started it. So I wrote all the software. We sold a fair few systems to our in-house guys, but it was obvious that these computers were going to be big, but obviously nothing like the way it's turned out. How did you know what to do? I mean, you've got no formal qualifications at this point, but you're you're writing software, presumably self-taught. You seem to have a business brain at this stage. Where does it come from? Yeah, well, who knows? I mean, look, one advantage of 
of American products, especially in those days, is the documentation's terrific. So basically, if you can read, it's not that hard to figure it out because it's all written down. You know, like we <laughs> yeah. used to work on on all this assembly language stuff and Intel had a book which just lists all the instructions and it's all there. So it's, you know, it's not really that difficult um, to figure it out. And I mean, business, well, I mean, I've, I've always learned a lot from books and magazines. So, you know, pretty much everything I've learned it, it has been that, that way. And there's a lot of stuff in there wow. and you pick up a lot of tips and, you know, you have an open mind on what to do and you just look at the problem and work out how we're going to solve it. And I guess probably one of the main differences is that for most people, if they've got a problem, the, the, the solution will be to find someone else who knows how to solve it and get them to solve it. <clears throat> My approach usually tends to be to try to figure out how to solve it myself. Even if I then later get other guys involved in it, I like to have a pretty strong understanding of, of what, what's going on because you can't manage people doing things that you don't know anything about that doesn't work. And you must have been quite early onto the this whole computer boom that was coming, I suppose, to in, in the 80s. When you look at companies like Lenovo, which I think was founded in 84, and you know, you've got Apple and all these out at Microsoft, all these big computer businesses coming online. Did Did you think this is a space that's going to blow up and I need to be on it? Or, or was it a case of right product, right place, right time, the rest is history? Well, you know, Microsoft was a $6 million company when we started. <coughs> that was their sales. And most of the – we started in things called microcomputers and microcomputers predated the PC mm-hmm. because the IBM PC didn't come out to whenever it came out. And the company that we represented in Australia didn't build a, a, a clone version of the IBM PC because they thought it was too late to get into that market. So our relationship with them only lasted a, probably four or five years before they went broke. And then we had to find supply of other machines, um, mostly out of Taiwan. And we built up the business with that. And then we started to distribute to Sheba in Australia, which was about 85. And look, no plan at any stage, really. It's more like a case of, well, you're in it and you just got to do the best you can. And you just analyze the situation pretty much day by day. I mean, it was way too fast moving for any kind of long-term plan or any of that kind of thing. Mm. And, and where where is Dicker Data now? Like, are you still very much at the helm steering the ship and in it day to day. Well, I get, <clears throat> I get the you know our sales reports and that every day, and I talk to our management people on the email every day, and I go to all the board meetings, and I still do all the strategy, and I do all the, the sort of the acquisition and all the sort of the big stuff, but I don't do the day to day stuff, and I don't, I'm not even really up to speed on technology either, to be honest. I mean, because. Um, you know, I've got management guys over there that do all that stuff. And when you've got a company that size, there's no way you can do it yourself. It's not even close. So you've got to have other people. And, <clears throat> like, we've got sort of four key management areas and three of those people have been working for me for 20 years. And the other guy's been there nearly 10. 
So they've been there a long time and they know what to do and they know how I like to work and, and you know, it all works pretty well. Mm. I, I, I don't, I'm not a micromanager, you know. The way I basically work is to set the goals and sort of set a few parameters and then just let them do it however they think best because that's the best way to get the outcome. Mm. And it's and it's clearly worked and you've been incredibly successful with Dick Data. But let's turn our attention to, to your new venture or your current venture, Road in Cars. Now, obviously, we've mentioned you have a passion for racing. You race in the Ferrari Challenge, of course, uh, and you know, you're racing boats as a, uh, when you were young. Where did the idea for roading cars come from then initially? And, and just tell us a bit about what, what the vision for it was when you first started it. Well, you know, everyone who's interested in cars wants to build their own car. That goes way back. Um, I had a kit car when I was about 20. So, you know, I had a lot of experience with mucking around on the car and again, reading all the books that you could buy and everything to try to understand the, you know, the mechanics and the dynamics of the whole thing. <clears throat> In about 83, I wrote, um, you know, suspension kinematic software because we were sponsoring some guy in a Formula Pacific so we could analyse the thing and all that kind of stuff. So <clears throat> goes back a long way. But the problem, of course, is money. You know, it's really expensive building cars and <clears throat> it's it's much more expensive now than it, it was like 20 or 30 years ago as well because, um, you know, the amount of equipment and the number of guys that you need now compared to what you could have got by within the 60s and 70s is much higher. The bar's been raised up by, by you know, just the whole way the industry's gone. So mm. it's much more difficult to get into it, but I always wanted to do it. And really, the impediment was that I couldn't make the money fast enough. It took me a long time to make <laughs> enough money to be able to do it. But this is no small operation, is it? I mean, you're obviously based out in New Zealand with the the factory of the, the the plant, whatever we call it. But you you've got um, you've got the factory, and you also have your own test track. Um, so why New Zealand? And and tell us a bit about the facility. <clears throat> Well, you couldn't do a project like this in Australia because the um, the government hates cars in Australia. The police hate cars. And if you're a young guy and you're interested in cars, they're just going to hound you until you give up. It's There's no car culture in Australia anymore. It's been pretty much destroyed by the coppers and the government. Really? And yeah, it's bad. And How come? You mean you think you've got the Australian Grand Prix and things? You think there'd be some sort of uh, thirst for, for motor racing? Yeah, and we had all those motorbike guys, you know, Gardner mm. doing all those dudes. But mm. <clears throat> if you want to hoon around on the roads in Australia, they're going to screw you over big time. Right. You know, like it's, 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 it's the worst country in the world, really. For, for If you want to muck around with cars, it's terrible. <laughs> and... Just multitudes of problems on it mm. and just the whole the whole thing. I mean, we've got really low speed limits and they're really rigidly enforced. Wow. <laughs> you know, so you can Australia be nailed for being 3K over in a 60 zone in Australia. I'm talking <laughs> 60 kilometres, you know. Like, I was nailed for doing 106 in a 100 zone once, you know. I mean, like, it's just – and they're just obsessed with the, with the road tire. Like, <clears throat> 
twice as many people suicide in Australia every year as are killed on the roads, <clears throat> but you wouldn't know it. And the amount of effort they put into it and, and the police presence, oh, God, it's absolutely appalling. They're everywhere. Like it's just so, so thought right up, up sticks. Let's let's go to New Zealand where it's a little bit more chilled, and yeah, and start building a, a game here. and then start building a, a rival to a Formula One Formula One car. Well, the other problem you've got in Australia, look, if you want to build cars, you've got to have a test track. I think that's that's obvious because without doing a huge amount of testing, you can't develop the car and you've got to develop cars because that's just the way it is. Um, you know, they're not going to just fly out of the shed first build and it's great. And the commercial tracks are so busy and so difficult that it's just not really viable. Um, and, you know, the sort of testing that you do when you're manufacturing is like three laps just to see how something goes. Mm. You don't want to have to pack it up, trail it out, you know, the whole thing. So, it's very difficult. I was born in Sydney, so you've got to be miles out of Sydney before you can get far enough out of Sydney to yeah. get real estate to even think about building a track, and then you'd have so many issues with the noise and all the other stuff, hopelessly unviable, whereas in New Zealand, there's still a good car culture here. The cobbers have got a bit a bit uh, oppressive, but they're still not as aggressive as the ones in Australia. Yeah. And there's still a, a good car culture here. You know, when you take a drive on a Sunday here, you'll often see old and interesting cars on the highway and all that kind of stuff. And you just mm-hmm. don't see much of that in Sydney. I mean, it's it's just too gotten too big and it's too congested and it's screwed. So <clears throat> you've well, got if, open area and you can you, you can build stuff. I think if we've discovered one thing, it's that you do not want to uh, drive in Australia. Throughout. No, it's, <laughs> it's the one thing I've done. Avoid Australia at all costs. And you, you've got to be the, the only guy, surely, in New Zealand that has his own racetrack at his office. Is, is that fair to say? No, not really, because, um, you know, Tony Quinn owns two tracks here. Okay, they're commercial tracks, but, you know, he can go out for a spin any day like. So, no, I'm not... I'm, there's always someone better, you know, one of those things you don't even want to worry about. There's always some guy who's got more money or more cars or more this or more that, so it's not really a competition. Um, and, you know, we did it on the cheap anyway. Um, the the normal way to do it, like the way he did it, is, um, you know, get in a roading contractor and I'll bring in a huge team of guys and machinery and do it in three to six months and it'll cost a megabuck fortune. And... When I started it here, I didn't really have that much money. I couldn't really do it that way, even if I wanted to. So <clears throat> what I did was buy machinery. And originally, I wanted to do a lot of the work myself. I did do a fair bit of you know work. Um, but I hired a guy who used to work for a rating contractor who just lived in the local town. And then he and his father basically did all the work, except for the laying of the tar. And... Of course, it takes a bit longer because you've only got a, one or two guys and wins since died, so we've got one guy. But you've got your own equipment and you've got time, so you can do it the way you want to do it. Mm. And if you do something and you think, oh, it's not quite right, it's not a big hassle to redo mm. it, whereas when you do things with contractors, that kind of thing's not really an option. So you've got a lot more flexibility and you can do things much more exactly the way you want to do them. 
Now you have this amazing track in New Zealand. Tell us a bit more about the types of car then you are developing because you've got a couple of different different uh, models. Well, the, if you want to go right back to the start of the project, in about 2000 and I'm not even sure what it was. It might have been 2002 or four, whatever year the Commonwealth Games were on in Manchester. Mm-hmm. Um, because <laughs> my daughter was a professional cyclist and she was riding in them. And we were over in the UK and um, we found this project that a guy had had built back in 99. It was a GT1 car that Lola had basically built for him. And we sort of bought this project. So we had the car and some drawings and the body moulds and all the other kind of stuff. And we thought, oh, well, we can build this. And it was going to be a road car. So you basically got a two-seat supercar. But the issue, of course, that you've got with any car is you've got to market the thing. And, you know, there's already a million two-seat supercars on the market. And in marketing, you've got to have an edge. And so what was the edge going to be? You know, I couldn't see one. And that's really when we decided to build a single-seat car because a single-seat car is, a, is its own category. So then you can be out in front in your own category and then we, we started to sort of think about the marketing side of that. And then, obviously, I've been following Formula One since the 70s. Um, so then we thought, well, wait a minute, we can probably build a car quicker than a Formula One and building a track car is a little bit easier than building a car for the road because you won't have to worry about any of the rules. So that's really how it started. So, again, it wasn't really a grand plan, but the, the pieces sort of fall together as you give it some thought, and that's basically where it went. So then we we thought, yeah, okay, that's what we'll do. And, you know, it ought to be reasonably viable, and then we'll just build road versions of it, and we're going to build an electric and petrol versions because <clears throat> the electric cars are so easy to build that you'd be crazy not to. I'm not a big fan of the electric car, mainly because of the sound problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you still got to be realistic in the market. And have you found that What's the history of it? Have you found that the car is now quicker than a Formula One car? Well, we don't have it running, to be honest. So we don't. We, we, all we have at the moment is looking at the data, you know, the specification. But the target weight six hundred and five, and we've got most of the bits here. So I still feel pretty confident we should get to that number or or pretty close to it. And the F1 guys are at 749, I think. So we've got a huge benefit in the weight there straight away. I mean, you know, that's that's five, six seconds a lap right there. Wow. And, and when, when will we see it running? Uh, it should be running by the end of the year, early next year. The engine will, will be the impediment because we're building our own engine and we had a, used a guy in, that I knew in the UK to do it originally, and it sort of got a little bit off the rails. So we gave it to Neil Brown, and they're going to finish it off. They should have it running, I hope, before Christmas, but maybe just after. And we're building a new facility down here because we're going to bring all the en- engine manufacturing, including the castings and the cranks and everything in-house, in New Zealand early next year so we can actually build the engines ourselves. David, it feels like there should be a um, a Rodin F1 team. Is this ever going to materialise? 
Well, I'm not supposed to talk about it, you know. <gasps> Don't you can't tease us like that. Is it must it must have it must cross your mind. Have you had people from Formula One sort of you know saying no? Hi? But uh, it, I mean, you know that there are Formula One teams on the market. Oh yes. So you know. You can. You have to draw your own conclusions there because I'm not supposed to talk about it. I don't think it's a massive secret, but I don't know whether there's anything possible there or not, but we are looking into it. Brilliant. That is very exciting. Um, well, you've obviously um, taken the services of young Jamie Chadwick, um, who's involved with you in a partnership capacity and has spent some time at your racetrack. I think, I think I'm right in saying she holds the record around your, your track. Um, Jamie, someone we're, we're very familiar with. How, how did that relationship start and, and um, a great person to be aligned with? Yeah, well, we got a PR agency in the UK, so they sort of put us under it. And <coughs> I've always, you know, I've had a lot of women working for me. Like I started Dicadata with my first wife and, you know, I've always had a lot of faith in women because um, – I've always had good success working with them. And so that that part was good. And she's actually good in the car. So it was pretty good, really. You know, now, like now, um, Jamie Jamie uh, is part of the Williams F1 team, isn't she? She's part of the yeah, yeah. travel line, isn't she? Yeah. Oh. And she got a podium. She she got a podium. She never even driven she she told me she'd never even driven one of the F1 cars, not even one of the old ones. No. And, and, that's and a I mean, that's lame. She had her first weekend in the, in her in the the Formula Regional um, series that she's she's racing in, and she she bagged herself third already uh, in the first outing. So she's had a pretty solid start to her her new season, and obviously is is the uh, the reigning W Series champion. So comes with some pedigree. So what what plans have you got with Jamie moving forward? Yeah, well, we'd like to put her into F three International next year, and obviously move it up from there. If we can, if I mean, you it's could, really up to her to get get the pace and then move it up. If if all goes well, would you like to be affiliated with her and have her racing in Formula One? Yeah, it'd be good if possible because I mean, from a marketing standpoint, it's a bonanza, and she's actually good in the car. So you know, I think she's got the ability to actually do it, which is exciting because. There's only really, like outside of drag racing in America, where there's plenty of women that go well, um, Michelle Mouton's the only woman who's ever really been any kind of force in motor racing, as far as I can think of, certainly in Europe. And she's definitely got the ability to do it. Mm. I feel sure of that. And, um, yes, and that'd be good. I mean, look, I've always been a bit of an underdog supporter. You know, the, the... the big guys, like, look, it's like Formula One now with Mercedes. It's boring because, you know, they've got more resources than anyone else. They've got the best car. They've got the best driver. Well, of course they're going to win all the races. Yeah. So what? Yeah. Not proven a thing. And it's as dull as dishwater. And look, I'm a massive fan of Ferrari and I got a lot of Ferraris. But even I got a bit bored with it when Schumacher and, and that was just wiping them out in the same way because it's dull. You know, it's not it's not entertaining anymore. Yeah, yeah. What was your what's your favourite era of Formula One? <clears throat> well, I think the best era in Formula One was that relatively short period after the first turbo era. 
when they went back to the three and a half litre engines and they had a lot of, like that was when, you know, more than 30 cars had turned up to a Grand Prix and they'd have pre-qualifying or even, you know, a runoff for pre-qualifying and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't that expensive to build an F1 car. Like with the facilities that we've got here, we could easily build an, an 89 F1. I had an 89 F1. Um, so, you know, we could easily build a car like that completely from scratch because, you know, Ricardo's building the gearbox for the F0 and it's a completely clean sheet design. So um, I think that was the best era and up until sort of probably the mid-90s when they sort of started to screw it up with, you know, that groove tyre stuff and mm. all the other crap and the silly narrow track and all this whole... You know, once they started to actively slow the cars down, I think they made a huge mistake. Um, but I, that period, I think, was the best. If you look at, you sort of take everything into account, technically drivers and the whole thing. I mean, there's been other eras with more exciting, I think, more exciting driving stuff, like probably the 70s, but that that's probably the era I like the mm, best. Yeah, yeah, there's that, it's that romance, isn't it, as well, of, of the olden eras. We we had uh, Freddie Hunt on the show not too long ago and we were talking about, obviously, his father, James, and the battles with uh, Louder and so on and th- those sorts of eras, although I think we look back with slight rose-tinted glasses sometimes about the, the, the racing, it, it did have a certain romance to it that I don't know that you get anymore. Well, it's <clears throat> the teams are too efficient now. You know, the cars never break down. Like, you'd watch a race in the 70s and 80s, and sometimes you'd get five or six cars finish. Yeah. Because, you know, they were so rubbish that, you know, like, you, you know, the whole thing. I mean, yeah, it was just the excitement level was much higher. I mean, I don't know, even quite understand why they're fixated on all this overtaking stuff because – you don't need overtaking for exciting racing. Like, I don't know if you saw Jamie's race on the weekend, like in race one, but she spent basically the whole 30 minutes holding up three guys and it was good. And you see piles of interesting stuff in F1 that haven't got anything to do with overtaking. I mean, if you want to see a lot of overtaking, we'll go to the speedway. Mm. I mean, you know, I don't think that's what that's, that's not what they need. And yeah. There's more overtaking in F2 and F3 anyway. I have to be, I have to really wonder about this whole new car that they're going to have next year where they're all going to be able to follow and now it's all going to suddenly happen because you get a lot more overtaking in F2 and F3 than you do in F1 anyway and the F2 and F3 cars are all the same. I suppose the overtaking is actually the boring part. That's when the the actual fighting is over and someone's won, and then they, then they just carry on their way. You want the fights to last longer, which might might work with these new cars if they're able to to get close to each other. Uh, but again, we'll have to wait and see. You yourself, though, are a racer, as we have uh, briefly spoke about with the the Ferrari Challenge. Tell us about that and and how that's going, and and what's it like driving those Ferrari GT cars. Yeah, well, it's pretty good. I mean, Ferrari is a terrific company. Um, the, in Asia Pacific, Ferrari themselves run the whole series. So they look after all the cars and they supply all the mechanics and all the engineers. And <clears throat> they do the hospitality and they basically do everything. All you got to do is they organize the hotel and the whole thing. You just got to fly in. And it's great, really. Um, they do a terrific job. It's a good car. And it, it's a good series. And, you know, it's not blighted by, like, in Porsche Cup where they have all these professional guys. 
mm. and all this other sort of stuff, which is just crap because, um, you know, I mean, I'm the oldest guy in it in Asia Pacific, um, but you still you still got some chance of getting some kind of outcome and it's a good environment, it's a good atmosphere and they're good cars and, you know, really it's pretty good. What, what's your what's your driving style? Are you uh, are you a mentalist in the um, in the cockpit? Do you go crazy, foot flat to the floor, late braking or, or are you more of a just take it as it comes, relax, Sunday drive? No, I try to go as hard as I can. Like I got a practice car in New Zealand. Well, actually I'd... Yeah. Um, I had a 450, I bought a 458 as a practice car here. I did about a thousand laps here in the 458 and then I got a 488 practice car. And again, I've done, I don't know, four or 5,000 kilometers in in that car. So now I take it real serious. We do all the, like not last year, but the, the, the in the second season, we used to work on the setup of the car here because um, I could never quite get it the way I wanted it. And we used to send a sheet to Ferrari before every round with the setup. And they'd just set the car up with the setups we'd done here. <clears throat> you have an engineer and a mechanic. And then last year I got, I got a coach as well. And the engineer gets a bit, got a bit cranky about it because he said, well, you know, what am I doing? So last year I said, oh, well, okay, we'll do it your way. So we did it his way, which was okay. Worked out pretty well. I did get the car working the way I wanted it to at the last race of last season. So, you know, the problem the, the challenge cars got is that basically they, they aren't, there's just too much understeer in a challenge car. And you can try as hard as you like, but you're always fighting the understeer. You're just limited by how much speed you can carry into the turns by how much grip you got on the front. And I think the Evo cars are a fair bit better, but... I haven't had a, I've only had one race in the Evo car and that was in Bahrain and Bahrain's a tyre killer so we didn't really get a chance to um, get a good evaluation and I don't have an Evo practice car down here so I'm not really, I don't know much about the Evo but yeah, it's it's a really good series and they're, they're really good race cars as well um, and it's amazing considering how close they are to the road car. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic stuff. And now living in Dubai, um, you might be aware of. I'm sure you are aware of this already. You you actually have an, a, one of the world's great driving roads an hour down the road from you or so in Razzle Kama. Have you have you done the uh, the mountain road there in Razzle Kama in one of your your supercars? No, of course not. Oh, no. you should. It's it's an, um, we we went there with a guy called JWW who I don't know if he's been to your track out in New Zealand. I know I think one of the no, YouTubers. I've seen his videos on yeah. YouTube though. So we we went out with him to Razzle Kama and took a McLaren and a Ferrari um, up that road for thirty five kilometres. It was absolutely incredible. It's an amazing driving road. I'd highly recommend it. But listen, yeah, I, I should. I um, I, I, in terms of business, there are many entrepreneurs and businessmen around the world who have theories or write books about what people should do to be successful from starting a day at 5am to healthy eating, working out, meditating, doing things 10 times better than anyone else in your niche. What advice could you give to someone about starting a scalable or, or and sustainable business now? Like, What would you tell people if they were just starting out on their own business ventures? Well, the, the, I think the main thing for success is a commitment bordering on obsession. That's really what you need because, um, look, 
when, when I started in, when I got into the business, I'd been racing these boats for 10 years. And to be honest, I was burnt out. I was sick of it. I used to go quite well. I won a lot of club championships. I didn't win any anything above that, but I was quick and I was good. But I was burnt out and I was tired of busting my ass and I had no money. It was a bit crap, you know. And um, once I got into business, the biggest, the biggest difference between business and sport is that in sport, if you're not winning, you, you, you're basically screwed um, because that's the way sport works. Uh, whereas in business, it isn't like that. Um, you know, it's not, it's not sort of um, graded out in, in such an easily uh, visible way. So you can be very successful in business and you don't necessarily have to be that good. You just have to perform and, you know, there's so many categories and so many opportunities. It's just a completely different world and it's a much more suitable world because sport's cruel. If you're not winning, then you're losing. Yeah. And you don't have that issue in business. So, um, yeah, I found, to be honest, I found that invigorating. Yeah, yeah, and particularly in Formula One. I mean, it, it, we've interviewed a few guys on here who who have been in Formula One, uh, like Brendan Hartley, who who got a who didn't win and and didn't necessarily perform as high as they would have liked to, and got absolutely annihilated by the media, broadcasters, fans, um, and before you know it, you're 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 chucked out of the team and and you're having to find a new way to to make a living. But it's it's a, it is a brutal world indeed. Um, question for you: as, as you were growing up through your business career, um, did you have? Well, actually, business and racing it could be either. Did you have an idol or someone you you aspired to, or was there a hero or anyone that really mentored you through the years? I've never really had a mentor because I'm a bit too headstrong for the mentor thing, especially when I was younger. Um, like I was obsessed with doing it my way. Like uh, at my funeral, I'm going to have Frank Sinatra singing my way. <laughs> well, it's worked all right. how I feel about it. And I was, when I was younger, I just wasn't mature enough to really understand that getting the outcome is more important in the final upshoot than sort of the way you got the outcome. But unfortunately, that's still very important to me. And so it's not just winning, it's winning in a certain way that was important and really I guess even in business it's it's um it's the way you do things are just about as important as, as the outcome. Like a dick of data, you know, we, we use different ways of operating and we have different philosophies and that kind of thing's important to me. And like, you know, we did a public float that was done in a way that all the advisors said you couldn't do it that way, but we did it. And then we bought this company that was two or three times bigger than our company and we did it on 100% debt. Now, you guys mightn't be sort of completely up to speed on all that kind of stuff, but that's basically unheard of. You know, when we wanted to do this thing, they said, oh, well, you'll have to do 40% equity of your company to do it. And I said, no, I'm going to do that because um, we wanted to do the equity later. So... We bought this company with 100% debt and it was really tight, but we managed it. And then we floated shares away later on to pay down the debt. It cost, we bought it for 50 odd million. And that was a massive improvement, you know, in the equity base by doing it. Of course, it was tough, but, you know, so <clears throat> they're the kind of things that help you out by having slightly better strategies. And in the business, like, 
we project our sales a year ahead. So our time horizon is basically 12 months and we project that for each month. So for each individual month, we have a target of what we want to do because we've been in this business for so long that we, we understand it exceptionally well. And by doing that, we have everyone's got a clear picture of what they need to do. Whereas if you're in a business and the, and the, the target is, well, let's sell as much as we can, how does that work? I mean, what's as much as we can? It's like, you know, it'd be like a, it'd be like a guy in a motor race. It, it'd be like the, the Mercedes guys saying, well, look, shit, we got to win by as much as we can. Yeah. And they'd be saying, well, what's that mean? You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. when you've got a target that, and then you just be satisfied that you make the number. Yeah. And, you know, this is just a better way of doing things than this sort of idea of, well, we just got to get as much as we can. It doesn't even make sense. Yeah. And also trusting your your own instincts, I think. I mean, it's, it sounds like you're a, you're a, a character who who dances to his own tune. You know, you're, you're not trying to emulate somebody or follow someone else's path or necessarily, you know, take someone else's guidance. You're doing what you feel is right, and by all accounts, well, I, it's paid off. Well, I I try to analyze the situation rationally, and then usually the the solution's pretty obvious. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Try to take the emotion out of it, and especially, obviously, you deal with people, and you you work with people that you wouldn't socialise with necessarily, and you know, like vendors especially, um, and you just learn to deal with all that kind of stuff and keep the emotion out of it, because as soon as the emotion comes into any of these things, you're going to make bad decisions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, if you could go back in time. Is there anything you'd change about the way you did business or about yourself? Well, I would have probably tried to avoid getting divorced. <laughs> That's um, probably because of the business, yeah, wasn't it? My, my first wife was, was a good person. It was really my fault. And we still get on well. So, you know, and to be honest, like, I often wonder how – it amazes me how these, these professional sportsmen in their 20s can deal with it all because – when I was in my twenties, I'm sure I wouldn't have been able to deal with any of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But then I don't know if I'd want to go back again because it's so hard to get an outcome. But I'm not sure I'd want to take the risk of having to start again because it's really tough. You know, like I've considered myself to be exceptionally fortunate to the position I'm in because my ex-wife left our business in the start of 2004, and we tried to sell it for 10 million bucks a year or two earlier. So, you know, my net worth was like about 5 million bucks. Now, okay, most people would think, oh, well, yeah, this is great. But really, I'd already been in the business since 78. So whatever, what's that, 26 years. And I had 5 million bucks. I mean, that wasn't very impressive. Um, And, you know, in the 14 years, no, six, sorry, 16 the 16 years since then, obviously the positions improved out of sight and, you know, that's a very satisfying outcome because I'm not one to push people out of the way to take charge. So I let Fiona sort of pretty much run it. I mean, I set the strategies and we talked about everything, but she she basically operated it and I, after we got divorced in 96, so even though we'd kept working together, obviously there's a few issues there and... <clears throat> It was pretty satisfying to be able to pick it up um, and get and get an outcome out of it from there. So, 
what's what's next? What's the next big venture? Is there one, or is it just to to carry on doing what you're doing? Ray beckons. <laughs> That's the spirit. <laughs> Not until you're in Formula One, please. Yeah, but look, I'm 67 years old. <clears throat> I should have retired. I mean, God Almighty, we were. We would have been in our 30s and we were making pretty good money. And I can remember Fiona's parents not being able to understand why we didn't just retire. I mean, bored, my granny, yeah, you would. But sometimes it would be nice to be able to kick back a little bit. But my grandfather died at my father's work and I, that's probably how I'd like to go, you know. I can't. I, from what you said, I I just can't see you retiring somehow. I think um, I think the Dicker uh, Empire is going to continue, um, hopefully, till we see you in in uh, a certain type of single seater racing in the future. Um, listen, David, we won't keep you for too much longer. We've got three final questions which we ask all of our guests. Harry, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, first one: What's got you excited at the moment? Well, I'm excited about what we're doing, obviously, but that's a sort of a whole long term thing, but. I bought a car on a whim yesterday morning. That was exciting. What was it? it uh, it's a, um, I'm not even sure what the year model is, but a Ferrari 308 GT4. Wow. That's I so had a cool. 308 GTB in the 80s, and um, I've always liked that car, and I've got a lot of the modern Ferraris, and they're great, but the problem you've got is that the performance is so stupendous that, it's very difficult to use, um, and it's going to be nice to just see what the old carburetor and obviously the first thing we'll do is put a tube on it, and that that'll be a bit of fun. You'll be able to actually rev the engine out without worrying about going too fast. That's very cool. Very cool. Um, if not doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing had this had never happened? I, I haven't got any idea. <laughs> the um, <clears throat> When I was in fifth year, I was 17. I wanted to leave school and become a sailmaker because we had a sailmaker who made all our sails and I wanted to apprentice to him and my parents wouldn't let me. So if I'd have done that, um, I probably would, things would have taken a completely different turn. But I, I often wonder what I'd do if I had to start from scratch. And to be honest, I haven't got any idea, but I'm sure I'd think of something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's amazing what, what could have been. Um, final question for you, though. What are you scared of? <sighs> well, I don't like lizards and snakes. Ah, uh, no. And Aussies nice. full of them. Yeah, I know. That's one of the things that's good about New Zealand. There are no reptiles here. Yeah, yeah. Not, uh, yeah, not like Australia. I don't want to get any anywhere near any kind of big creepy crawlies or anything like that. Well, when I was a kid, the, the guys over the road had a house in a sort of a bush setting and there used to be this blue-tongued lizard that had sort of sun on this little step around a corner and you'd walk around this corner and scare the shit out of you. <laughs> I must admit, I'm not a fan of lizards or snakes or anything of that variety. And, and uh, Australia, you can keep your, your nasty big bugs. Actually, David, one, one last question just before we, we let you go uh, back to, your, to the rest of your day. Um, Rodin, where, where'd the name come from? Well, <clears throat> um. Most guys are egomaniacs, so they want to make, uh, they want the car to have their own name. Um, I'm not really an egomaniac, and I, my, I don't find my name an attractive-sounding set of syllables. So, <laughs> I think that was 
that was never even a question. And I, we only called it Dick of Data because I'm a stupid father. He thought that was a great idea. I sure didn't. But, um, so after you don't use your own name, the next thing is some stupid animal thing, which I also thought was very lame. So, um, you know, that statue, The Thinker? Yeah, well, that was done by Rodin. Well, it's Rodan, really, okay. but, oh. you know, we're English speaking, so we call it Rodin. And so the, the, that statue is sort of our logo and it epitom, the car epitomises human thought. So that's the basis behind the name. Oh, that statue. I, I, this is terrible. I'm ashamed to admit it. I had to Google that. And, I, and now I know the statue that you're talking about. The Thinker. Is that, was that a quick Google search of The Thinker? Yeah, <laughs> basically. And, and, and he is thinking. He is sat there thinking. Yeah. No, well, my first wife was a... Um, she, the only subject she passed in high school was art. So we, we, we thought about using it on a... I, 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 like I spent 10 years trying to build my own computer back in the 80s. So, um, you know, it does have a long pedigree, but I liked it. So I thought I'd use it again. Actually, um, I've got one more for you. Sorry, we keep saying we're going to stop and then we keep asking you one more thing. One more thing. Um, outside of racing, being a businessman, building cars, what's your, what else, what's your talent? What have you got that no one knows about necessarily? What Have you got an, another talent outside of all those things? Uh, probably not. I don't know. I mean, I've still got a boat. I mean, I bought an, a boat in Australia, but I haven't even seen it for four or five years. So <laughs> I used to do a bit of skiing. I used to be able to ski outside of the front door of my house in Italy, but they took oh, a lift nice. down last year. Oh. But no, not really. Look, I'm not that exciting. And and when I get involved in things, I like to really get on it. Like I, I um, in the late 80s and early 90s, my wife thought it would be a good idea for our company to bowl in a league, you know, temping bowling. Mm-hmm. So we started to bowl, and I did a little bit of it when I was a kid, and I used to enjoy it. But um, anyway, I started to practice a lot and bowl in leagues and tournaments and all that kind of stuff, and I was okay, not too bad. I'd wreck my shoulder skiing, unfortunately, back in the 80s, and that always made it a bit difficult. But... I got so obsessed with the practice that we actually put our own lane in at the factory. <laughs> so we actually had our own bowling lane in-house and it was a proper lane with a, you know, a Brunswick A2 and the whole thing exactly the same. It was only <laughs> one amazing. lane, exactly the same. And I used to drill my own balls because drilling the balls is very scientific. Um, you know, bowling balls are not just um, round bits of plastic. When you get up to sort of the pro level, the drilling and the construction of the balls and the finish of the surfaces and that is massively complex and scientific. And it was a lot of fun, really, you know. God, built your own alley. So I find it pretty easy to get obsessed with almost anything if I just happen to get into it. Yeah. And, but does that, obsess, does that obsession, apart from the obvious with your businesses, does that obsession fade? Are you one of those people that gets totally into something and then after six months thinks, nah, on to the next thing, I'm bored? Well, I probably can. I probably last about maybe five or ten years. Like uh, you know, I bowled for ages and ages. We moved. Um, I don't know. I think I started to bowl in about '91 or '92, and we moved from the factory that we had the bowling lane in in '99. So I didn't really sort of bowl a real lot after that because we couldn't move it. And 
blah, blah, blah. So that was a fair period. I spent 10 years racing the boats. I went from 14 to 24. So, you know, I've got a fair bit of stickability. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Listen, we must let you go, but it's been it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, we obviously wish you all the best for Rodin. Um, your relationship with Jamie, obviously, we hope that goes from strength to strength. And um, if you find yourself on our shores when lockdown is all out the way, um, we'd love to take you for a bite to eat and chat some more. Yeah, well, I'll keep you posted because I may have to make a, new, a trip to the UK imminently. Good. Well, well, let us know if you do. And we're booking that flight to New Zealand as soon as we can. 100%. Yeah, well, you're welcome to come down here. We, you know, we'll put you in a couple of interesting cars and, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's great, really. But yes. We've got to do it, Harry. It's got to be done. There's a new video coming. Um, brilliant. Well, David, um, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast and uh, wish you all the best in the future. Let's definitely keep in touch. Yeah, thanks very much. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and on Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile, interact with others and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy don't forget to like subscribe and review and until next time you've been listening to the motormouth podcast